Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion. That USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. It was Sunday in the middle of the afternoon where I started seeing, you know, videos come in on Twitter of the protests. At first, I was kind of surreal, like, no, there's no way that this is Cuba or these videos must be old or they must be, you know, like people are sharing the same video. But it was just video after video of people taking to the streets. My colleague, Sabrina Rodriguez, grew up in Hialeah, Florida. Hialeah is like 97% Hispanic. It's almost all Cuban. And this is our reporter, Mark Caputo. I have been covering Florida politics for more than 20 years now. I grew up in Key West, Florida, which is the closest place to Cuba in the continental United States, uh, 90 miles away. Though I'm not Cuban, Cuba policy kind of affected uh, me, but you're Cuban. I am. What are your relatives saying? What are their neighbors saying? My phone has been ringing off the hook since all of this happened. Everyone in my family calling. Wait, what are people calling me saying about, have you seen these videos? Are they for real? Check this out. Frankly, uh, everyone I spoke to said they've never seen anything like this. And then I started, you know, starting to reach out to friends in Cuba and kind of just verify what was happening. Breaking right now. Cuba. Rare demonstration. Largest anti-government protest. Obviously, it's very difficult to get information out of the country. The world's eyes are on Cuba. The U.S.'s eyes are on Cuba. Sabrina and Mark have been closely watching the protests in Cuba unfold. You know, I have to emphasize that these protests are unprecedented. Unprecedented protests, followed by a violent crackdown from the Cuban government. And obviously that crackdown comes from a place of the Cuban government being fearful of what's next and what to come. But a lot of us have that question of what is going to happen. Cuba policy isn't just a Miami political issue anymore. Florida is a must-win state for Republican presidential candidates. And Donald Trump won handily among the Cuban-American population in Miami-Dade County. So in the middle of historic protests in Cuba, how are Democrats and Republicans weaponizing the situation for political leverage? What's President Biden's strategy here? I'm Tara Palmieri. This is Playbook Deep Dive. On Thursday, Biden slapped sanctions on Cuban regime officials for human rights abuses. There's more breaking news here in Washington. The Biden administration to announce new sanctions. Sanctions targeting the Cuban regime. Cuban regime and a government special forces unit known as the Buenas Negras. He also announced plans to boost Internet access on the island, calling the moves just the beginning. It can be hard to tell from a distance if you don't live and breathe Florida politics how to read Biden's go it slow response. Now, on one hand, it shouldn't surprise me because we saw in the campaign that Biden's style of reacting to crises is to not react too quickly. However, when you have moments of crises and international uh, issues like what's happening in Cuba, it probably calls for a little faster of a reaction. Florida Democrats are calling this a golden opportunity, a chance for Biden to help bring democracy to Cuba. And as a result, 
attract the Hispanic voters that he lost last election. One Florida Democrat even called it a Mr. Gorbachev, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall opportunity. Tear down this wall. So why are they moving so slowly? I mean, you kind of touch on it, but but do you see this as a historic moment and a turning point? Oh, yeah. I mean, the last time you saw uprisings like this on the island was in the late 1950s, which brought Castro into power. And before that would probably be in the, you know, I'd reference the 1890s. So 1898 is the Spanish-American War. And that's when Spain famously had what they called their volunteers who would come in and brutally repress the people of Cuba. And you remember Teddy Roosevelt disembarked for Cuba with his Rough Riders from Tampa, not Miami. He did snub Miami, which bothered a lot of folks in Miami at the time. But you know, there are a number of Florida Democrats who say he should come here and he should speak out. Now, there is a theory that maybe the idea of Biden's people would be, hey, let's keep the pressure on the regime. Let's not insert ourselves. Let's not make this look like, in the words of uh, Diaz-Canal, who's now the nominal head of Cuba, a Yankee imperialist plot to overthrow the government there. Let's let the Cuban people speak for themselves. But the reality is, is Cuba is a spy state. It's a totalitarian government. They are importing, just as the Spaniards did with their volunteers, thugs from places like Venezuela to help brutally repress their own people. And the fact that more, I don't want to say it dismissively lip service, the, the fact that there's just not more discussion from Biden about this leads me to wonder what their reticence is, right? Uh, does he not want to get tagged with the fact that, look, I mean, Cuba's government, its its current regime has been in power since 1959. You know, that's that's 12 U.S. presidents, not including Biden. So, you know, maybe there's a fatalistic view. There's another kind of very Florida-centric political view that, you know, Joe Biden, he got crushed in Florida in 2020. And... There's a belief among many Democrats nationally that, you know, Florida's not worth it. It's big. It's expensive. We keep losing there. Let's focus on Arizona and Georgia. Uh, part of the problem with that is the issue of socialism, the tagging of Democrats as being socialist and to kind of a uh, Marxist affirming, that message spreads beyond South Florida's Latino communities. And, you know, as you know, we're talking Cuban-Americans, Venezuelan-Americans, Colombian, Nicaraguan. That spreads into suburbs, and it's probably spreading into suburbs where it's black people, white people, Hispanic people of various backgrounds and ethnic origins, and it's probably spreading beyond Florida. So while Republicans have a unified voice on this saying, hey, let's stand up for the Cuban people, let's put pressure on Cuba, the Democratic response has been fractured. There's, you know, the, the initial in the eyes of you know, opponents of the regime, good response from Biden, who said, you know, this is a communist regime. It's brutal. They should stop repressing their people. But there's also kind of a fractured response from the left itself. I think you tweeted the, the Black Lives Matter organization made a statement about Cuba, said nothing about the fact that people were being brutalized and only blamed the U.S. embargo. And it's that sort of fault line, those mixed messages, which could have political ramifications in the years to come. You know, <laughs> I could talk about Cuba for days, and as I see you, I gather that you can too. Well, I'm curious, you know, if I could ask you, what are what are your relatives saying? What are their neighbors saying? How do they see this? Every day, rain or shine, I've gotten to see my entire social media is clogged up of just people on the streets protesting. Libertad! 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 
people sharing the hashtag SOS Cuba videos, calling for the Biden administration to do something. A lot of people I went to high school with, so younger Cuban Americans, came this past weekend on buses to Washington, D.C. to protest. And I even stopped by to just see what the protests look like. And it was hundreds of people. Like, it, it was easily over a 1,000 people. In Washington? In Washington, D.C. I mean, the majority of them came from Miami. Like, I know there was buses that were organized to leave from Westland Mall. That's the mall in the middle of Hialeah. And they were protesting, chanting intervention. <laughs> so mm. the chants were some of the ones that we heard in the island of Patria y Vida, Homeland Life, um, or Liberty. It was some of the ones that, that we heard in Cuba. But in addition to that, there was the intervention and kind of calling on Biden. And I saw plenty of posters saying that there needs to be U.S. military intervention. Oh, boy. Um, which is something that is not on the table. <laughs> That's just mm. it's something to point out. Even though Cuban-Americans, some in Miami, have, have been calling for that. That's not a realistic you know, plan that the Biden administration is pursuing. They're looking at smaller, more incremental things like remittances, like, you know, adding consular services in Cuba because they've had the embassy closed. They're looking at those kinds of things, not U.S. military intervention. And I mean, so far, I and I asked this on Twitter yesterday because I was really wondering, like, has there been any reporting of Cubans in Cuba asking for U.S. military intervention? <laughs> I have yet to see any videos of that or any reporting on that. Uh, one person mentioned to me, a political consultant that you know in Florida, uh, messaged me saying, well, yeah, because they'd be killed if if they said that publicly. Um, so I guess that's a factor to consider, but there has not been reporting of people calling for that. Well, also, let alone, I mean, you know, the people of Cuba are suffering. Yes, there's the embargo, and it's undoubtedly had an effect on the economy. But I, I think there's a – he might be a columnist for the Washington Post, an Afro-Latino, lives in Cuba. He apportioned the blame about 70-30. Abraham Jimenez Anoa, that is the Cuban journalist, I think, to, to follow right now. Right. And, it, you know, he, he said about 70 percent of the problem there is probably due to the government of Cuba and 30 percent of the embargo. Like, I'm, I'm not going to dispute his perceptions there, but that, that seems consistent with what I've heard. But, you know, if you have people who are starving and you know, have a lot of problems. The last thing they're going to want is a bunch of bombs dropped on their head or bullets flying. And that's what military intervention is. Now, unlike Venezuela, which, you know, for a while was kind of a client state of the Cuban security services, you know, Venezuela has an organized opposition. Cuba has crushed that. So if we were to go in the United States and militarily invade Cuba, you know, it's the, you broke it, you bought it. It would have more of an Iraq quality to it where, yeah, maybe we could achieve our ends militarily pretty quickly. But then you're kind of stuck with it. And you're stuck with a place that doesn't have much infrastructure for uh, non-Marxist uh, or totalitarian government-aligned personnel to run it. So it just seems like a dead end. Yeah. And then there's the fact that Puerto Rico, you know, back to the Spanish-American War. After 1898, the United States gains Puerto Rico but decides to let Cuba be independent. Uh, you know, Puerto Rico is still a territory of the United States. Like, that place is is kind of financially in shambles, not as bad as Cuba, but like our track record in Latin America is not so hot and it's not just limited to Cuba and Puerto Rico. So, yes, it does kind of worry me that we hear these voices saying this. But at the same time, I would really doubt that Biden would approve a military invasion of some sort. Now, there is Marco Rubio, the senator for Florida, who is saying 
if Cuba decides to do a mass migration a la Marielle, the Marielle Boatlift in 1980, that would be considered, in Rubio's words, kind of an act of war. And I think it's important. I've already asked the Biden administration to do this, and that is be very clear with the Cuban government. If you trigger a mass migration, we will consider it a hostility, an act of war. We will respond accordingly. And he's saying maybe if that happens, the United States government should go in and seize the ports of Cuba to prevent that from occurring. But that in of itself also seems kind of like fraught territory for us. Yeah. Okay, Mark, I feel like we have to get you a history podcast, like Politico, like historian edition. Well, I mean, we're but these are like historic times. I mean, to your point, right? You and I talked about this. Like, would you ever imagine anyone in Havana protesting the government by waving a U.S. flag? Yeah, sure. It's not everybody doing it, but people are doing it. That's crazy. Well, no, but even like, let's take the United States out of the equation here. I mean, to hear people protesting in Cuba, chanting for liberty, chanting no patria muerte, patria, patria vida, like to be chanting that on the street, to be outright saying I'm not scared, to be outright saying like I've lost my fear and that you're willing to have these confrontations with the government. I mean, I was talking to Tania Bruguera, who is a known dissident in Cuba artist, and she was saying, you know, there's no there's no going back from that. You know, there's no turning back when that happens. When the people lose the fear, then you can't take that back. Um, and I mean, that is it's true. I mean, seeing what's happening, that's where I'm just curious of what's next. We've already seen the crackdown. But if people are continuing to protest in spite of the crackdown or people already have lost their respect for the government because they've seen if they were sympathetic for the cause and now they've seen their neighbors, their families, their friends get dragged out of their homes and taken and imprisoned or disappeared. I mean, it changes the dynamic. It changes the nature of, of the situation. Yeah, I, I just as someone who lives in Miami and grew up, as I said, in Key West, outside of Miami's orbit, I'm not sure we want to empower the people of Miami, essentially, to take over Cuba. Okay, like Miami's a, a great place to live, uh, but uh, like there's a there's a lot of folks for saying. That. You know, I don't care. I mean, I, I'm sorry, but like, you know, let's just focus on what we got to here. Say that about my people. I, I didn't say about your people. I said the people of Miami. Miami. So you can't say that. I said the people of Miami. <laughs> no, but I'm serious. Like you laugh for a reason. Like, I, like, are we sure we want that? Right. Like, like, do we really want to do this? But I think your relatives are raising the important point here is that a lot of politics is talking. A lot of politics is being present. You know, not to quote Woody Allen, but I'm going to quote Woody Allen. Eighty percent of life is showing up. You got to show up and show you care. Well, one of the reasons that Trump so fundamentally helped reorient Cuban Americans and to a degree Venezuelans, Colombians, Nicaraguan Americans toward or back toward the Republican fold is he showed up. He said he cared. He talked. I stand with the proud people of Cuba, Nicaragua and Venezuela in their righteous struggle for freedom. Like he rattled sabers about Venezuela and didn't do shit. But the reality is, is a lot of people wanted to hear the rattling of sabers. A lot of people wanted to see, well, he did do something. He, he did do sanctions on Venezuela. You know, it wasn't a significant amount of activity, but the reality is he said, look, you people care about this. I care about this. Another thing, do we have an organization of American states ambassador? I don't think we do. Has he petitioned OAS and its permanent council to take up this issue and discuss? He hasn't to build kind of an international coalition. On the other hand, recently, I think it was in June, 
once again, for like the 29th straight year in a row, the United Nations condemned the U.S. embargo of Cuba. Uh, only Israel has stood by the United States side in that. So it's not as if the United States policy internationally or even domestically is that popular. But unfortunately, though it has some brutal results, the embargo and some of the efforts to starve the regime of money and resources is working because you have people on the streets who are starved and starved of resources and they're taking to the streets. And that, that's kind of a fundamental tension, like how much of this sort of U.S. blockade, as they call it in Cuba, how much of the embargo do we want to keep? Because on one hand, it's working. On the other hand, it, it comes at a, at a pretty brutal price. You know, one of the things that kind of gets lost in the discussion about the embargo and the Trump era sanctions, the Trump era sanctions were actually pretty interesting because they're designed not as a full embargo. They said, hey, United States businessmen, you guys can trade with Cuba. You could send money to Cuba, but the Cuban government is not allowed to take a cut. The Cuban government is not allowed to take it over. They're going to have to sponsor a free market system. And the Cuban government has specifically refused. Gaesa, which is the military of Cuba, essentially runs everything. They run the hotels. Like, what military runs hotels, right, and restaurants? But Cuba does. I don't know if you saw this tweet that I put up last week. I feel like you would have called me and told me what an awful tweet it was. But I was, like, very annoyed <laughs> because, yes, as a Miami Cuban, like, I care very much about Florida politics and love Miami being the center of the universe. But also, I, like, wish that more of the talk around Cuba and around what to do with Cuba was centered in what works for the Cuban people and what is best for the Cuban people and less of what what is going to please Miami Cubans or what do Miami Cubans want or what are Floridians saying they want when this is about the Cuban people? I don't have the answer for it. I couldn't tell you like A, B, and C are the things that Biden needs to do because those would help the Cuban people. But I definitely think there is some level of disconnect between what people in Miami want to happen and what at least a majority of the Cuban people in Cuba want. But I will say, okay, I mean, Let's like lightning round answer this one for me. If you were Biden's advisor, what would you say for him to do? I have an idea what you would answer, but what would you say for to do? I, I think what I said earlier, like while I understand the remittances going to Cuba is problematic because Cuba's government takes 20 cents of every dollar cent. The reality is, is like people need to eat. There's been a lot of discussion about COVID as well. They don't have vaccines despite the Cuban government's well-publicized propaganda about the genius of its healthcare system. So it would probably be like a, a package of carrots and sticks, like because of the humanitarian crisis, send more food, send vaccines, send hypodermic needles. Let the government of Cuba turn that back, right? Mm -hmm. uh, also, as mentioned earlier, get the Organization of American States to talk about this. Make this more of an international issue rather than merely Cuba versus the United States by discussing this publicly. I don't know if any of it's going to work because, you know, two of the players we haven't really talked about, Russia and China, both of those security services are there. Uh, Putin's government and Xi Jinping's government have shown a knack for propping up dictatorships that are opposed to the United States in Syria and Venezuela and certainly in Cuba. Yeah. Well, I think an important thing to note here is the fact that, you know, 
Cuba is the X factor in a lot of this because the U.S. can do whatever policy it wants and Cuba can attempt to circumvent it, to work around it, because we're talking about, okay, the sanctions on Cuba under the Trump administration, they were meant to create more pressure on the Cuban government. But to the words of many protesters in Cuba, Diaz Canel is not losing any meals. He's not losing any sleep. Like, you know, the leaders in Cuba are still eating and the leaders in Cuba still have medicine and they're not the ones that are that are suffering. The sanctions by creating pressure on Cuba are creating more pressure and more suffering on the Cuban people. That's just the nature of what they're supposed to do. But on the other side of it, if we're talking about the embargo and lifting the embargo, well, yes, there's the argument that that disarms the the critique or the argument that the Cuban government has made for so many decades of all this is the fault of the embargo. We have no fault. It's the embargo's fault. If you lift the embargo, you take away that excuse. That is true. However, has the Cuban government done anything to deserve that? Has the Cuban government done anything based on if we're talking about the criteria and definition for why it would be removed? Have they met that? No. But I'll ask you, I mean, last thing, though, is what's the strategy ahead? You know, we're obviously Politico and looking ahead to 2022 to 2024. It might be early to tell, but is this going to cost Biden in Florida, the state that he already lost? Lincoln once in his famous speech, a house divided cannot stand. The Democratic House is divided over this. You have kind of those voices of the far left saying, scrap the embargo. Uh, some of them not even denouncing Cuba repression, instead just focusing solely on the embargo. Whereas Republicans are are pretty unified and consistent and clear in their message. And sometimes it helps uh, to be in the minority in this case, because you can be more freewheeling of criticisms. You can blame more of the situation on the people in power uh, in the United States government. In this case, it's the Democrats. But, you know, I, I just... I just find it hard to believe that Cuba is going to change until Cuba changes. And I'm, I'm not mm-hmm. sure the degree to which we affect that at all. Albeit, again, the embargo does create that that upward pressure from people who are at the kind of bottom of Cuban society, which is most Cubans, right, who who are hungry. But to your point, the embargo has provided a very uh, convenient excuse for the Cuban government to blame the U.S. for these problems. The problem that the Cuban government now has is more and more Cubans are no longer buying that as an excuse. They have no money. They have no food. They're taking to the streets. I just don't know how long that can continue on before there's a breaking point, either with the Cuban government or with U.S. policy. Well, I'm going to let us end on that note because I think that is the the real question here. Will something happen and what is it going to take for that to happen? Uh, but I think uh, – I don't know. I, I want to be optimistic and say that this time is different and it is different, unprecedented protests. But um, how you actually achieve change in Cuba is a much longer question that we could spend days on. Yeah, I I don't know if I'd ever be able to answer that. And I, I also think way back when to like 1989, uh, I can't remember if the year is exact, in Tiananmen Square, the uprising of students there, brutally crushed by the Chinese uh, government. Uh, you've heard know more about you know democracy movements in a, at a significant level in China. Uh, that having been said, that China has certainly been much more effective in uh, making sure that enough of its population is not starving and feels well cared for and, and also feels fearful of the government to where you don't see in China what we're seeing currently in Cuba. 
Just as a note or an addition, one of the things I, I wanted to mention that I forgot to was when I was seven years old in 1980 after the Mariel Boatlift, you know, there were thousands and thousands of people who fled Cuba and came to the, the nearest port, and that was Key West. And I remember as a kid just being astonished at the number of people who had almost no belongings, maybe a bag of clothes, that were walking down the street, you know, having been sort of newly freed from Cuba, newly entered the United States. And my dad just recently reminded me of this. One day we got a doorbell ring and there were these four Cuban immigrants who were hungry. And my dad was a fisherman and he had some fish called a wahoo, which is a fantastic fish, like one of the best eating fish. And he, he gave them all of these great wahoo steaks uh, to have and to kind of, you know, go forth and, and eat. And it was just a profoundly significant moment in my life where that's when I realized, like, my God, I live in this this place which has all of this prosperity. We have wahoo in the fridge and we have a fridge and all this food. And these people had nothing. And that still continues to this, this day. And it's perhaps reverting back to folks having even less because there are people in Cuba who are starved and hungry. And, you know, not only do they want freedom, not only do they want vaccines, they want food, they want stability. And they also want just, say, the respect of being a human being and being alive. And very often when we have these discussions about Cuba and Cuba policy, we sometimes focus so much on the politics and the policy and the state side that we forget that these are individuals, these are human beings we're talking about and they have fundamental needs and fundamental questions about human rights that are not being fulfilled, either by Cuba's government or, to a lesser degree, by United States policy toward Cuba. Thank you so much for joining me, Mark. Always great talking to you. Always here, too. And that's our show. Our producers are Adrian Hurst and Annie Reese. Our senior producer is Jenny Ament. And our executive producer is Irene Noguchi. Mike Zappler is Playbook's daily newsletter editor. Our music is by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. If you like what you hear, subscribe, rate, and review us where you listen. We'll take you behind the scenes of Capitol Hill again next week on another Playbook Deep Dive. Thanks for listening. Hey, Juan Gonzalez, a.k.a. the National Security Council's Senior Director for the Western Hemisphere. It's Sabrina Rodriguez here. If you're listening, which I hope you are, I have a few questions. First of all, what's the latest on the Biden administration's pledge to ease some of the travel restrictions to Cuba? Is that coming anytime soon? And more broadly, the Western Hemisphere, there's a lot going on right now. Let's talk about the strategy. You know where to find me. I'm at srodriguez at politico.com. Look forward to hearing from you. Hold up. 